So, hello. <laughs> hello, you on the other side of reality. <laughs> I really like uh, these uh, evenings of uh, meditation and coming together around these uh, teaching. There's something that I always find very sweet and um, and uh, I want to say, uh, uh, and I've never st- know how to say this word in English. Pung, no, not pungent. Pungent. Must be a French word. Yeah. Um, I don't know why it always uh, or very very often stand out. This this um, I think it's because of the meditation part. So we sit here in the middle of um, of what it is to be a human being, you know. So we we sit here for with bodily sensation, things happening in the in the body, and things happening in the in the in the heart, mind, and thoughts, and stories, and contractions, and Hurting and all this, uh, this um, this very strange situation to find oneself in, to be a human being, huh? to to, uh, to to be alive and and to to feel all this. There's so much going on. Um, you know, just the fact that we have these senses, and constantly there's a. You know, sensation being felt and sounds, and, and the, in, in, in the Buddhist psychology, we talk about sixth sense, the, the mind being a kind of a sense door. And so these images, impressions, thoughts that come, and uh, we live our life and we sit here, and, and constantly the, this, this, these doors open and things are felt constantly. And, and, uh, and sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's extremely, or just a little like, extremely agreeable, uh, pleasant, or very unpleasant, but this kind of dense. And, and so when we sit in meditation, for me it's very, uh, I sit and like, God, again, all this life that, that is, uh, is happening. Yeah? It's very touching. And this job of meditation that is for me just this... Um, this listening to that and kind of uh, um, allowing that to to be and to um, maybe unwind, maybe uh, and and to also this this thing of getting in contact with this life. This um, this is how I um, this is one of the aspects of what I I like about meditation is this um, kind of intimacy that one can um, can. Um, I don't know if it build is the right word, but uh, can you hear me well? When I yeah, so this intimacy with uh, the ex- the lived experience. Huh? So what we do as we sit is um, opening the senses slowly, huh? opening the heart, opening the mind, and um, yeah, and so that's what's. Uh, What's happening that I find very, very beautiful, and every everybody has their own little story. We each have our own story, but um, th- but there's so many things that are universal. Uh, the fact that we're um, we're kind of um, I don't know if it's your experience. You'll tell me, but um, we're kind of pushed re- left and right huh, in this experience of being alive. Like outside, the conditions are. Um, at least once in a while, not uh, in accord with what we would like. Uh, so we're kind of pushed by the, the, the situations we find ourselves in. And if it was only on the outside, that would be one thing. But then it's also inside, no? You sit there, come to meditation, you have this idea, maybe, you know, uh, meditation, you know, luminous mind, you know, ease of body, you know alignment, balance, all these, you know, and, and what do you find in there often, you know? It's commenting 
without an end, you know, or it's it's stuck in a st- some kind of very sticky story, and uh, and uh, it feels things, you know, this this beingness. It feels, you know, all, all these emotions sometimes calm and joy and connection and and ease and caring, but often confusion and uh, and some kind of little anxiety and or big anxiety and. And so we do this um, courageous uh, work of sitting with this and uh, getting in, in contact with this or witnessing this and uh, learning to, in a way, love the whole shebang. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so let me tell you, I'm going to switch a bit here. I'm going to tell you a story of... Um, so, so I'm talking about this listening, this accepting our life, you know, and, and trying to respond well, gracefully, to the inner turmoil and the outside turmoil, be, being awake enough and attentive enough to find uh, the, the appropriate way to be with what is happening and to, to respond, you know. And so, um, and it doesn't work all that well sometimes. Uh, so one time I was sitting uh, about where, uh, where uh, Paul is, uh, is sitting at the retreat like this, and the teacher was uh, teaching, offering beautiful teaching, and it was a very uh, generous teacher. And uh, so she was uh, offering a lot of teaching. And, uh, and at some point I... Uh, I don't know what happened exactly in my mind, but uh, and I think there was a speaker just like right above me, but it started to be like too intense, like the the speaker and the so so I was sitting there and uh, and I was getting impatient and starting to have uh, opinions about what's go- what was going on and it should be shouldn't be happening like this. So I, I was not exactly into like allowing things to be and <laughs> like. I was getting all worked up and very, very worked up. And at some point, I thought, like, in my mind, it was really clear that for survival reasons, I had to leave the room. Otherwise, my, my eardrums would explode. And I, I actually had to escape this situation. And, and it was very... And I, have very, I, I was really stuck in my story and my reactivity. And I had very little uh, body awareness. And so I had not uh, noticed that uh, my legs were numb. Because I was really like, I, I don't know if that happens to you. So that's something that I see often is I'm, I'm kind of s- stuck in a, a world that is, it seems, that's an image that I have, but it's kind of a, it's like this, it's kind of a, almost like a bandwidth or something. Like it, it's, it's my story, the story of Pascal. Pascal wants this to finish and Pascal and how, or how is Pascal perceived and Pascal will, you know, like it's this obsession that it, and it, and there's life, you know, somewhere there's life happening, but, but I'm in, I'm in a fiction, you know, they kind of, a, in a, some people call it a trance, you know, I'm in the trance of like my story, you know, and, and I'm thinking about my story and how my story should be different and, uh, and anyway, so I was kind of stuck in that little thin world there, <laughs> fiction. And uh, so I, I, uh, I stood up to leave the room. <laughs> but I didn't know that my legs were numb. <laughs> so I... I, I uh, and there was a full room, like tonight. So you imagine we're all uh, sitting here. And, and suddenly, like, so I stand up and I... I I fall like flat on my face and chest. And actually, just here, there was a little uh, stage about this high. And so my chest went on the floor and my, my chin went on the stage. And it, it did a big bang, you know. And okay, if, I'd, if it had been only that... That would have been something, but then, so everybody looked, obviously, and the, the teacher being very, uh, very sweet, very uh, caring, and she, uh, said like, oh, what's going on? Are you all right? And, and I went like this, it's too loud! It's too loud! 
I was shouting <laughs> to be heard, you know, in my dementia. <laughs> shouting out of my trance, you know. And, uh, and if it was only that... So, um, so the, the teacher, very sweet again, looked at everyone and she said, is it too loud? <laughs> and everybody went like this. <laughs> so, if it was only that... <laughs> That was one of my first retreats, I was saying. <laughs> and so I was humiliated. And, you know, there would have been a way to actually be, have some uh, listening skills. The meditation that I call listening, listening to the body, you know, it's like, like okay, my love, y- you see the, the tone, the, the friendly tone inside? Like, okay, my love, you're getting very agitated. It's hard for you to be here. Your legs are numb. Undo your legs. <laughs> We'll let the blood come back in, and we'll find a way to leave. You know, but that's not what happened. You know, I'm flat on my face, and everybody agrees that it's not too loud. And my legs are still numb, so I start crawling out. <laughs> and crawling, and then on my fours, and slowly. I, by the end of the, the thing, I managed to be back on my feet and with a very, very, very strong desire to not exist. <laughs> to disappear. And um, so that's kind of my understanding. That's where wisdom came from. <laughs> my understanding that what, what we try to do in developing this... Um, this um, meditative presence, I would call it, because I, I, um, this presence, let me call it like this tonight, because that's a skill that I, uh, I want on the cushion, for obvious reason, it's, it's just been named, you know, to, to avoid situations like these, but it's also a skill that I want to bring in my life, this capacity to, to listen much more deeply than uh, the level of ideas about what's, what's going on, you know. And uh, so, so to, to, um, to be able to respond uh, appropriately to, to life so that I don't create more trouble for myself or for others, because now, you know, I'm on the other side there of the room, I've left the room, but, you know, I'm stuck with this story, you know, <laughs> you know that I have to organize, you know, and, and, and this, this shame and this self-hatred or whatever is happening, you know. And I mean, it, take, it, it probably took a few... Uh, at least a few hours before I got to have a little humor about about that, you know, as you can imagine. But uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so this this story of um, it's just a, a way to just to talk about this quality of uh, being attentive, being attentive, so. Um, so things can show up. Like, for example, if I, I had been attentive at any point in there, I could have realized, you know, that there was a strong, strong agitation, that there was a lot of reactivity and could have accompanied myself instead of, uh, instead of being lost in the, the story that it was telling me. Yeah. Um, I'm just switching story. Until what time do you give me? Hmm? At, until what time do you give me? Oh. <laughs> a while longer. Eight thirty-five, maybe. Okay. So, um, one time I was also sitting in meditation like this, and um, uh, you know, the intention was to be aware of what the body, uh, uh, the lived experience, the breath, maybe to help uh, pacify the mind, calm the mind. Or aware of mind states, that's what we do. And we notice, oh, and Jack was saying this, like, notice if there is sadness being present, if there is uh, ease, and what's the, 
what's the, the, the texture of this experience? What, what is it like? Or if I'm stuck in something, what, what is the, the, the texture is the word that comes now. What is the texture of being stuck? And what is the texture of acceptance or ease, you know? What, what is this? And just be curious uh, in that. But that time what I decided to do was to, uh, or it was a habit of mind uh, to actually um, kind of check out for a mi minute in fantasy. And, um, and so, um, so there were, okay, so I have to make a decision here about how intimate we are, so I tell you my story. <laughs> I'll take your word. So, um, many, many years ago, I, I discovered that I had the life-threatening uh, dis disease. I'm, I'm healthy, and it's, it's, it's unfolding really well, this story, but, but um, it, it's a pain in the butt. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was sitting there on, in meditation, and uh, I was gone. I was not aware of that. I was stuck in my uh, lust in thoughts. You know, I was not aware of that. I, uh, and I was thinking of if I didn't have this thing in my life, how easy would my life be, you know? So I was dreaming about, oh, if there was not this, it would be so easy to go in India, travel in India, and the medication wouldn't have to be, uh, you know, no, no refrigeration of medication. And, and you know, so I was gone, and, and, um, and that's to give me a break of my life that seemed difficult. So that, that uh, pattern, that, that thing that I was doing, was, a, was known done for, to, to give me relief, you know, so I can dream for a few seconds of the other life, you know. And, and uh, suddenly I just came back, I realized that I was uh, thinking, and I just came back to here and now. But here and now there was this, this situation was still here, you know, and that sucked. But because I, I had been attentive before and developing this attention, I, I saw the movement back, how painful it was to come back and, and I also said that the other one actually didn't exist. It was a, a creation of the mind, a generation of the mind, that, and that my life would always fail to come in the comparison with that version of how it could be, and the kind of drop, you know? And, um, and because there was suddenly this attention, you know, oh, this is actually not helpful. Like I'm creating a world that doesn't exist and it makes the other one miserable, you know. And I think because there was this, um, I think because there was this, this attention, this caring suddenly, there was, I think, there was, a, the, anyway, this creative idea jumped in my mind. I thought, oh, I'm going to, this is not helpful, this thing. And I, I knew that I did it often, going to bed, waking up in the morning, here and there, you know. But then I thought, what I'm going to do is, uh, right here now, I'm going to marry my life. So I'm going to really commit to my life. And I'm not going to consider have craving and lust for other people's life. I'm, when I go to bed at night, I'm going to go to bed with my life. And when I'm, I wake up in the morning, I'm going to wake up with my life. And I'm going to cherish my life. And I made this little imaginary thing of uh, going to the altar with my life. And I don't know if it was Jack or one of my teacher was there, you know, hosting the, the wedding. <laughs> and there was like, are you ready to take this life as your life? <laughs> and to me, there was, I mean, it's playful, you know, but there was something I, no, I, yes, I do. And it's a serious decision. I don't need to think about it. I want it. It's obvious that, that it's the right thing to do, you know. And, uh, and something switched in me and that I could let go of this other thing that seemed to be helpful, you know, the other life and was not. And for me, that movement liberating renunciation of a bad pattern 
to me is really much linked to meditation, to being attentive. And even if I go off, sometimes I come back and there's a, with the practice of coming back and being here and being very attentive, I can notice more. So I'm not deluded to think that this is helpful anymore. I can see uh, the truth as it is. This is not helpful. Yeah? And, uh, yeah. And sometimes it, it uh, feels or felt more, it's different these days, but um, feels like this, this thing in my life is like, um, almost like if there was a spare, spe- spare, that was kind of stuck, spear. spear, stuck like this, you know. And uh, so it, it means that when I, you know, go through a door, you know, <laughs> I, m- many people can just walk in, you know. <laughs> But I have to go to the side, you know, and do like this. Or when I get in the car, you know, like I, I have to, oh, excuse me, but, you know, does, do you mind if this is like in, while you're driving, you know, and like there's this thing. But I took it on, you know, and, and it's like, okay, so can I live with a, a spear on the side, you know? It's, do I prefer to disappear or, or live with a kind of a crooked life, you know? And, and, and there's something very beautiful about it, very sweet about like how accommodating I can be to a, a life, that life, you know. And uh, so do you see the relationship that is a friendly, compassionate relationship with, uh, with experience? So it's not like my view of happiness in the past would have been get me rid of this and happiness is there. And now I can see that, oh, happiness can totally be there like this, you know, Some, somewhat like this. And, um, and so I, I think that all what I'm describing now for me is uh, all of this is a result of um, learning through my teachers how to pay uh, attention in a precise way, more and more without forcing, but inviting wakefulness again and again on the cushion, and then the relationships, and with the clerk at the post office, you know, inviting, always tending towards presence and um, a kind of benevolence or friendliness, or uh, always. And um, yeah, it's it's um, I've, I it's just a, a a good practice, a good. A good thing to do with one's uh, brain, brain, neurons, uh, body, you know. Uh, so. You do? Well, you know me. <laughs> Give me two, two or three seconds and I'll fall on some, something else. This has zero to do with what I had planned to talk about you. I don't even know what this this. this, this. <laughs> Scribbling means, but um, that's how it is. And um, yeah, so um, and so I'm just back to. So we we are. Was it you? Yeah, we are very intimate in this way. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you for um, just for allowing me to. Uh, there's a bunch of people who speak French here. Déblatérie. <laughs> um, just spilling my guts. <laughs> but it feels very much... Uh, that's another thing that I, I find strange. Is it feels like... Um, how to say that? I never voiced that. That's another... That's new now. This, this story that I just tell, told, the second one, it doesn't feel so personal. It feels like uh, it's, it's our story. You might not have known about it, but it feels like it's our story. It, be, it belongs to everyone. And... Um, and, 
and it's it's there. It does it does exist. It exists a hundred percent in some way, but it's so not personal. It's and it's there, and we have to take care of it. But it's it doesn't feel so personal. So I'm giving us back our story, and I know there's many many more story that we. Uh, that is ours, or not ours, or their, or I don't know how to say that. But thank you. So, Pascal, you didn't talk about what you said you would talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but that's completely fine. That's great. <laughs> Bunch of <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. you and your story, that. you know, reminded me. I told this group I was in Bali this summer, um, traveling with some friends and visiting shamans and really extraordinary kinds of experiences. In one village that we went to, uh, put on the Balinese ketchup, which is the monkey chant and so forth. It was actually the village of Bono, which is the place that the genesis of that particular amazing dance and chant and they also had a trance dance and firewalking in the middle of it so all uh, under the moonlight 150 villagers with their um, kind of flaming torches and we're out in the fields and they're all chanting and so forth and then these guys go in trance and they start dancing um, in this big fire that they made of coconut husks and so forth Um, and it was quite amazing and I was quite captivated by it all and so forth. And then I thought, well, they're doing firewalking, why not? You know? <clears throat> and so, not checking in with myself so clearly, um, there with a few of my friends, I said, oh, I'm going to do that. And I got up from my seat. There were only, there were, there were only a handful of, uh, of Westerners there. It was really done for themselves. And so I ran out in the middle, and I started dancing around the fire, um, and they were all chanting away. And then I started to run through the fire, you know, and kick the burning things up and do it. It's very dramatic. Um, and and uh, walk on the fire and so forth. Because they're doing it. Well, of course, you know. And then, and I was kind of singing along with them. And then my song or the chant tra- changed to, ow, 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 ow. And it hurt so much, and my feet were... And I really burnt my feet. There was all these blisters, and I need water. Oh, and I'm limping out of there, and they're all just kind of watching me and laughing. <laughs> but I did think, as I was limping out of there, and I said, this is going to make a good story anyway, right? You know? <laughs> the main mistake that I made is that I didn't ask them how to do it. You know, I thought, okay, I'll just go do it. But apparently there are you know, some ways that are good for firewalking, and there was a little hubris there. I thought, oh, okay, I can do this. But anyway, um, and we went back to that village, and they would, I, I, I'm sure they have some Balinese name for me now. <laughs> so it is helpful to be able to pause, right, and kind of act in a more appropriate way. Um, but it seems to take a lifetime to learn it. You know what I mean? You know, you can, I can, you can get idealistic about how, how your spiritual life will develop and how wise you will become and so forth. And all you have to do is talk to your family members to kind of get, you know, straightened out about that. And yet, and yet it's terribly important. So, just to talk about what's important in that way, as you did. Um, Many of you know this psychological study that was the Good Samaritan experiment that was done some years ago with graduate students, as most good psychological studies are. Um, (laughs) And this particular school, the graduate students, were told that there was going to be a very important teaching and lecture on the story of the Good Samaritan from the Bible, Um, And one half of the group was told that that lecture and story was going to happen, and it was really important for their 
academic work and for what they were doing, that they be there and that they get there on time and they really be there for it. And it was happening very soon over in that building there and they were all on the way to, you know, go do that. And it was a very important requirement. And unbeknownst to them, they had hired a couple of actors to be along the path over to where that building was to take place. Someone who fell and was crying and somebody else who was, you know, I don't know, having a seizure or in some, you know, and asking for help or some homeless person. And because they were all in a hurry to get to learn about being a good Samaritan, right, (laughs) only 10% of them stopped. The other half of the group was instructed to go there. There would be teachings on the Good Samaritan. It was important for them. But they were told, they weren't told to hurry up or that there was any time pressure. They were told to go there and it would start when they got there and, you know, to take their time. And that group, which wasn't in the hurry to learn about being a Good Samaritan um, and could walk more in the present, the majority of them stopped. And so there's some way in which when we are, well, you talked about that narrow band of the stories that we tell. Another way to look at it is when the mind creates the future so much for us that we don't see the winter sunset that's coming, you know, the way the sky was so beautiful this evening, or we don't see the eyes of the people that we live with, or we don't realize that they're not the same person that they were this morning that they've changed and we've changed and you never know quite who you're going to meet when you go back. I mean, you don't even come sit in meditation. You don't even know who you're going to meet when you sit in meditation. Multitudes. Um, And, you know, I don't know when you talked about, you know, our crookedness. Was it Carl Sandburg who talked about loving your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart? Was that, was it Sandburg? You know, that there's some way in which meditation slows us down so that we can stop and see the person who's there on the side of the road who's saying, you know, I really need help. Or it slows us down enough so that we can see our own life with a measure of compassion, our own crookedness or spear or whatever it is, um, and see that it's part of the tainted glory of humanity, of just what it means to be a human being. And so there, there are all these ideas about meditation, um, but maybe the most important thing is just the fact that you can stop and come back to yourself in a culture that is so speedy and task-oriented that we lose ourselves. Um, when I was invited to go down to Stanford University to the business school a few years ago, I got a call from uh, one of the senior professors there who said that we, and then one of the assistant deans, that we get the top students around the country incredibly bright, smart, you know, very accomplished coming into Stanford Business School. Um, and they mostly have visions of what they're going to do, and they get in, and immediately they get in, they start having interviews with corporations and companies that they're going to work for, and they're planning their you know, six-figure jobs, and they're working really hard and doing their classwork and, and internships and all this. And they come in already having been so academic and so driven in some way, and it accelerates in business school. And by the time they leave, they're not in touch with themselves. And could you come and teach meditation because they've lost something in this? And I said to the dean, I said, so basically what you're asking for is, if I understand right, is soul retrieval. (laughs) And he said, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right, you know. So I did go down teaching. It was actually very moving to be with people because a lot of them understood it. But they were, in, they were in that layer or they were in some way that we all get in where they had lost something. And to come and sit in meditation is not to do anything to start with. I have this, this uh, cartoon. It shows an older man sitting in a kind of Barca lounge chair reading the paper and his wife looking at him and saying, Do you have any plans for the day, Earl? And he says, I once heard that the philosopher Blaise Pascal reported that all the problems in the world are caused by man's inability to sit still in a room. I see, says his wife, 
so your plan today is to solve all the world's problems. <laughs> and he said, someone has to do it. You know? <laughs> but the thing that's important to say and kind of piggybacks on what you were saying, Pascal, is that meditation actually has two parts to it. Um, just like breathing in and breathing out, um, the first step is to quiet the mind, open the heart, come back to live in the reality of the present, to live where we are, to be in touch with our bodies and feelings and intentions and dreams and, um, and, and to actually see the circumstance of our life, to live our life, to acclaim our life with our attention. Um, but then there's a way in which people understand that to be passive, that meditation somehow is, is a passive activity. Um, and that's just the breathing in part. Because once you quiet yourself, then the second step is to respond to the world, to get up with what the Buddha called right action, right livelihood, right speech, to actually engage in the life that you've been given, but not in a way that's lost or driven or so much in that layer of how you wish it would be, and much more in the reality of the present where you can respond. So two Zen stories, and they sort of show the opposite sides of this. One is the famous Zen story of a young woman in a village in Japan who became pregnant and her parents were upset because she wasn't married and it was a village where you're supposed to get married, etc., etc. And who did this to you? And she said, who did this to you? That's a funny thing, but anyway. <laughs> but we'll leave it. But that's how it was viewed. Anyway, we'll say, it was him. It was this, the young Zen master over there, the Zen teacher. And they marched over, and she, she, had, she got pregnant, she, she had the baby, and they marched over, they were very upset, and they handed the baby to him and said, you know, we're bringing this baby here, she says you're the father, you take care of it. And the Zen master looked at them and bowed, took the baby, and all he said was, is that so? And started to raise this child. And after three or four years raising this little baby in the Zen temple and taking care of him, the young woman confessed to her parents that actually it was the guy down the road who she'd fallen in love with, but she wasn't supposed to marry and she wasn't supposed to tell and so forth. But he was really the father and she apologized and she wanted to marry this guy now and so forth. Um, and so the parents took this young woman and they went back to the temple and they said, we're so sorry, but it turns out you're not the father of the child and um, we would like now to have this baby back and she's going to get married and you know, um, uh, we would like to have them raised in that family. Um, and the Zen master says, oh, is that so? And got the little boy and handed him back. So you hear that Zen story you know, and of course it's a ridiculous story. I mean, can you imagine just saying, is that so, knowing it's not your child, right? Or is that so after you've raised this kid? But there's something about it. It's a quintessential Zen story in that it expresses the first step of meditation, which is the ability to stop and just see the way things are without reacting. You know, to actually experience our life. This is the judging mind, this is anxiety, this is longing and desire, this is love, this is the state of my body today, um, this is the state of the society that we're in, to actually take a look at it and realize, well, everybody's running around, and then I'm sort of caught in that. Or there's the continuing dilemmas of environmental destruction or racism or war. Right? Wait, hmm, this is interesting. We're still at war. We've been at war for about 100 years in this country. We've, we're really a warlike nation, if you look historically. Oh, hmm, just to start to see the way things are. And when you see both internally and externally, which are the teachings of mindfulness, there starts to come a kind of wisdom. Okay, this is the way things are. This is the suffering of it. This is the magnificence and the beauty of it. And then the question is, what next? That's the in-breath. 
So the second story is Zen Master Suzuki Roshi. Um, they were going to go up above the Tassajara Monastery, deep in the forest, um, in out, you know, in the wilderness south of Carmel Valley. Um, and I forget what they were going to do. They were going to plant some tree or do something at the top of one of the hills there. And the Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, and a number of his disciples went and they brought this tree and they were going to do this ritual. And they got to the top and realized that no one had brought a shovel. And so they started to talk, well, who was supposed to have brought that shovel? You know, wasn't that your responsibility? And kind of talk about it, who was going to go down, who was a long hike down. And, and while they're in the middle of talking about it for a couple minutes or something, they look down and they notice that Suzuki Roshi is already halfway down the road going down to get the shovel. Um, and so that's the second story. It's a different than is that so story. It's saying, here I am living in the reality of the present, actually being present for what's needed, and then allowing that response to come completely and directly, naturally from the heart. We need a shovel. Let's not talk about it. Let's go get the shovel. Um, and it's not that you'll see it as you practice. It's not some kind of pre planned, highfalutin bodhisattva activity. Um, it's really about um, being present and allowing the, the stillness, the, the moment, even if you're in conflict or difficulty, the moment of taking a few breaths of um, what my friend Tara Brock calls the sacred pause, the pause where you check in with yourself, with your body or your legs or your experience or whatever um, it, it is. And then having quieted yourself, then the second part of mindfulness, it's called sampajanya in Sanskrit or Pali. One part is clear seeing, and the next part is called wise response. And it's not the response that's so self-centered because we're worried about ourselves, um, but it's the response because we're woven together with life, and it comes out of us as naturally as anything. Um, I tell the story sometimes of my dear friend Peggy, who's my favorite kindergarten teacher. Um, And it was just at the beginning of the war preparations for the Iraq war that we're now winding down from all all these low, these many years. Um, And one morning, um, before the war had started, there was a whole military buildup, as you may recall, and over the playground, um, where her place was situated, came a few military transport planes flying very low, and they have different noise requirements, so they were quite loud, and they scared the kids. And so they came running into the school. Um, you know, what are these great big noisy planes? They look like army planes. Um, what's? And she said, yes. Um, and she said, um, you know... Uh, have you kids heard about the fact that we might go to war? And five-year-old kids, they're very interested in this. Their parents had the TVs on and they heard about maybe we'll have a war with Iraq and stuff. So a lot of them knew about it. And they said, Peggy, what's on those planes? Bombs, maybe. Soldiers, maybe. Guns, maybe. Weapons, yeah. And then one of the little boys asked, said, well, are there kids there like us in Iraq? And she said, yes, there are. And he said, well, they must not know that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't bring all those bombs if there were kids like us. We have to tell them. You know? And so they got paper plates and paper and all the things they could, and they went on the playground and they made a huge picture of a child. Um, and then they spelled out Iraq. Peggy, tell us how to write the words Iraq. But they did it in giant letters so that it could be seen by the pilots that flew over so that they would know that there were children there and that they shouldn't bomb and that they should take care. So there's something in us that is innate, um, that's as close as our breath, 
that wants to respond, that knows our connection to one another, that knows the kind of love that you were talking about, Pascal. Or there's a kind of, one Zen master said that to become, to meditate and to become enlightened is to become intimate with the world, with yourself and the things around you. And so we quiet the mind and open the heart in some way to become intimate with ourselves and then to dance with the world with some balance. And you all know some of the time you need to not do anything. I mean, it's true for me too because I'm somebody that likes to run around a lot. And so meditation is a really good balance. In fact, I remember one time I was leading, for 10 years I led these three-month retreats at our center on the East Coast at IMS. And now for the last dozen or more years I've been leading our two-month winter spring retreat here. But anyway, at one of those three-month retreats, because I tend to be kind of a speed freak, it's just my nature and whatever, this person had come to sit. um, And I saw him in a meditation meeting or an interview or talking about his practice. And at some point, partly partway through the retreat, he started to um, uh, have a hard time and he began to express his frustrations with the retreat and the teachers, which is natural, okay? And he, he was, uh, he'd flown all the way from Europe and he said, listen, I listened to your tapes, I read your books, they seem so wise and gracious and, you know, and then I watch you run up and down the stairs. It's like some Italian shoe salesman, you know. And what kind of teacher are you, right? Thank you. You know, that's an image I won't forget. Would you like, uh, what? Yeah, is that so, exactly. So some words from the Dhammapada and the Tao Te Ching. And these are words that we really know ourselves. This is from the Dhammapada. As the farmer channels water to his land, as the fletcher whittles his arrows, as the carpenter turns their wood, so the wise person learns to direct their attention and their response to the world. And goes on. Again, these are verses from the Buddha. Let's see if I can find the right page. If you determine your course with force or speed, you miss the way of the Dharma. Consider quietly what is right and what is wrong. Um, Consider what is wise without haste. Observe the way of the Dharma, quiet yourself, and then act in a loving and fearless way and all will be well. And I think when it says all will be well, it doesn't mean that the world is going to be well, but you will have done your part. You will have planted your seed. You will have brought what is your gift to that circumstance. And sometimes it's to speak up, you know, in the face of injustice. Sometimes it's to occupy Berkeley or Oakland or Wall Street. Sometimes it's to occupy yourself, you know, to occupy the moment to actually be where you are and then respond in some wise way. Or the Tao Te Ching, which says, if you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you become naturally tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother and dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. Do you have the patience to wait till the mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arrives, arises by itself? And so those are, they're almost like poems from the Buddha or from Lao Tzu, but they're really a reminder to the heart of something that we know that there is, there's the breathing in and the breathing out. And it's not so much that anybody has a program about how you're supposed to live your life. Nobody has ever lived your weird life before. (laughs) And it is, it's amazing. I mean, nobody knows how you got in there, right? But here you are incarnate in this wild incarnation of humanity with all the stuff that Pascal was talking about going on inside and outside. And 
there's the possibility to be present for this life, to own your own life in some way, to be present with graciousness and compassion. And in doing so, then to see what needs to be done in this world, not because you're supposed to, but because it's as natural as your breath, as natural as those children saying, we have to let those pilots know that there are children there. Your heart knows how to respond when you get quiet and when you listen. And we live in a culture that's forgotten how to listen to its heart. And yet the the problems that we face in the world can't be solved solely by computers and biotechnology and more equipment and science, and it's just not going to do it. We'll just have more sophisticated wars. They really have to be solved as well by transformation of the heart. Within our own country, there are tremendous dilemmas. Um, We can't continue um, with as many people left out, with as many people disenfranchised, with as much... with as little care. I mean, a society in some way is judged by how it cares for those who are vulnerable in it, as well as the opportunity it offers for those who want to create and do both of those are important, and they're out of balance. And in some way then you start to hear what it means to live a balanced life, which is both a way to quiet your mind and open your heart and live in the present, and you start to feel freer in the present from all that talk and chatter and ideas and so forth. And then from that freedom to find your response, your unique gift, the thing that you have to to give or to offer. I don't know, one more little story and then see if we have something to dialogue about or... Um, Well, this is Julia Child first. She writes, In department stores, so much unnecessary kitchen equipment is bought indiscriminately by people who just come in for men's underwear. You know, There's some way in which we lose track of what really matters to ourselves. And, and, and the, the highest paid psychologists in the country are working very hard to make displays to put you in a trance. They are actually, and say, buy this, you know, do that. So there's that. And then there's this is from one of those little books, Children's Letters to God. It says, Dear God, it's like in second grade handwriting, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with me and my brother. (laughs) You know. And so there's the quieting of the mind. There's that, that part which we need to walk in the mountains, to walk by the ocean, to find a way to sit quietly and come back and center yourself. And then there's the practicality of it. Then it's time to get up and, like Suzuki Roshi, go down the mountain and get the shovel or respond to the circumstances of the society or the family or the community you're part of. But to do it in a very different way, to do it from the present rather than out of fear and reactivity and so forth. And those seeds make all the difference. What do you think? You did pretty well. Yeah? Oh, thank you, Pascal. There's um, <clears throat> not that many people left, in other words, right? <laughs> that how you... Not crawling. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's um, this movie, this documentary, uh, Dharma Brothers, you know, of uh, yes. it's, uh, in the high security uh, prison. They, uh, it's a very beautiful movie, and they organize a meditation retreat. Uh, and um, there was just one, one, one little excerpt uh, piece that I, was very touching to me. So there was this man, and he was saying, what I learned through meditation is to actually um, feel the... In, in the situation I'm in, where it's very dangerous, uh, every and loud day, and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day I find myself in a situation where I feel either extreme fear or extreme anger. And um, 
And what I learned through meditation is to actually allow myself to feel the sensation. And what I found is that the sensations were so unbearable that I would actually do something, you know, like uh, lash out in a way that was very dangerous for me and for others. But now I'm able to actually feel, completely feel the extreme discomfort of, uh, of fear or uh, extreme discomfort of anger. At the, and he was talking very precisely at the surface of the body, you know, like the, 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 the skin level almost. And, and, uh, and he was saying, and now I can totally feel this and keep my he- head cool so I can see who's where, what's happening, and, 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 uh, and act in a way that's going to be, uh, that's gonna be uh, good for me and for others, that, you know, where survival will be possible. And, and uh, I thought, well, if this man can do this in this environment... And he can manage to actually feel the, the, the sensation and feel the emotion and, and keep aware of the situation. You know, Pascal, come on. You, know? <laughs> you, can, you, can, uh, you can bring this to your life. And, uh, and the impact of, of that, you know, it's, it's not just self-survival, but how this person can become uh, some kind of a leader in their, in, in, in their environment and create... Uh, create a whole culture of uh, maybe of uh, of attention of uh, yeah, and what I like also like in in there that I I see is that uh, in this pause in this sacred pause I like that. Um, for me, what I can see sometimes is that it's just the gap, the right gap, so that I can remember my values. Yeah. Otherwise, when I'm in uh, reactivity, I just want to. Tell them, you know, how they are and how they've been and how they uh, and get what I want. I don't know. I, I can get lost in all kinds of ways, but if I can pause, I can suddenly remember. Yeah, you care about understanding. You care about considering others' point of view. You know, sometimes when we're in the emotion, the strong emotions like this, we uh, we can lose track of our values and uh, and and the wisdom that we have hardly so. Uh, in such a difficult way acquired is completely gone and the sacred pause is just enough of a gap even the shaky wisdom might be accessible in that pause that's what I, I, can, I can see and, and in that there's so much that one can do to um, you know to num- not make more trouble in the world you know but right. lessen the trouble of the world at, and at that at all level, you know, society, uh, conflict, uh, uh, and inner life, you know, at all levels. One of the things that um, is really wedded together with this capacity to come back to whatever training that you find, whether it's your meditation or your yoga practice or your walking in the mountains and the hills and so forth that bring you back to yourself and then to respond is, as you're saying, Pascal, is also somehow to to cultivate or become deliberate about your best intention, which I think I'll talk about next week. Um, I like to talk about the Bodhisattva and Bodhisattva vows, which is the archetypal way it's described in in Buddhist psychology and so forth, um, it is um, as we quiet and as we take stock of this wild, mysterious incarnation, then it becomes a very powerful thing to do to ask inside, um, what are my highest intentions? With what, what do I want to do with this life? Um, and it can be used in certain moments <clears throat> where you're caught or stuck or reactive. What Just to pause for a moment and ask, what's my best intention in this moment? But even more importantly, it can be a kind of <clears throat> reflection that one takes to say, what are the values? What are the things that I most care about and love that I want to leave as a legacy or that I want to plant or that to have come out of my life and my place in this world. And to know that, and in a certain way, to come back to those intentions. Um, All of the teachings of karma in uh, 
Buddhist teachings and Hindu teachings and so forth, they really all come down to intention. Um, and the most, the kind of the most critical place where we have a way to direct our life um, is um, by clarifying what our intention, what our deepest intention is, and then coming back to it. Um, and it's a, you know, just to say one more thing about karma, there's so many things I could say, but um, to give an example, you can take uh, a knife and stab it into somebody's body, cut their body open, and have them die. Same action, with very different karmic results. You could do that as a robber who's, you know, killing somebody in order to steal something, and that makes a certain kind of karma. Or you could see somebody who is choking on something and almost dying and be a surgeon and grab whatever there was there to try and help free their air passage and do the same thing, the same action, take the knife, cut their body open, have them die, the same result, and make entirely different karma. Mm -hmm. Even though the action's the same, because the purpose and the intention are completely different. Can you hear that? And so the intention with which you act is what creates the, the fruit that will respond to you in this world. Um, and the intention is, clarifying intention, um, gives you a reference to come back to uh, when things are difficult. Um, so we'll talk more about that next week in some way. Because it's something very, very beautiful, actually, to to clarify intention in that way. Um, I found myself a couple or a few weeks ago at a gathering that included some political people. Jerry Brown was there and Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton and um, Condoleezza and various other folks. Um, And part of the conversation we were having is how do you manage your life when there are so many demands, when you're on the jet all the time or when you having people call and having all these, you know, problems and emergencies. Um, And at least a couple of them were really interested in learning how to meditate. It was quite interesting, you know. If nothing else, it would help sleep better. Seriously, you know. So I just say it because we're in it together, you know. Um, And that there's something terribly important and beautiful and intimate about taking the time to sit or taking the time to quiet yourself or taking the time to meditate. Not because something special will happen. Sometimes you sit and all you get is, you know, the plans for the day or the reruns or something. But there's something in the cells of your body that go, oh yeah, here we are in this mystery. What matters? Anything to to close? This, um, just this stopping for a moment. So let's sit together then, huh? For just a minute or two. And then we'll go out into the autumn evening.
you quiet yourself and then you sense what beauty you can bring to the world. You can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in the spring and 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for scrawny kittens holding them to their skinny chests and painters going blind who paint more and composers going deaf who write great symphonies. And as you give yourself to life, it will flood through you. Thank you, Jacques. Pleasure. Thank you for your kind attention. And uh, drive politely out there. It's crowded. And enjoy the autumn evening. Thank you very much.